This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello. And welcome to the Giving Thought podcast uh, with your hosts, that would be me, Adam, and uh, Rod. Hiya! So Rod, we're going to be discussing uh, uh, another really small subject this week, which is the origins of philanthropy itself. Uh, And I believe came from uh, a suggestion from one of our listeners, didn't it? Yeah, amazingly, we've actually been engaging with our listeners. Uh, <laughs> you know, firstly, we have some, and also that we managed to uh, to sort ourselves out to do some social media and whatnot. But yeah, the the origins of this origins of philanthropy episode uh, was a suggestion from Kieran Goddard from the Association of Charitable Foundations here in the UK. Um, so thanks, Kieran, for that, and thanks to everybody else who came up with some other ideas that we're hopefully going to follow up in uh, in uh, subsequent episodes. Yeah. Great. Fantastic to see. Keep it coming, nerds. Uh, more of that. Um, but yeah, it's a subject that on the surface you might think would seem uh, pretty obvious uh, and stale, but actually uh, a lot has been written about it, uh, including by someone on the other end of a phone to me right at this uh, moment. Uh, but um, even right at the start, if we just start talking about the 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 very origins, the sort of evolutionary origins of, of philanthropy that's uh, a subject which is both uh, live and controversial isn't it rod yeah it is and i suppose the starting point is probably to say actually you need to broaden it out from philanthropy to talk about altruism uh, in a kind of broader sense so people or organisms doing things for others that seemingly go against their own self-interest but the uh, the really interesting thing which i only kind of learned about um fairly recently because i've uh, been in the midst of trying and failing to do a paper about the science of philanthropy for quite a few years now um is that this is actually a massive issue in evolutionary biology and kind of one of the big uh, outstanding problems um so basically like you know darwin charles darwin who came up with the theory of natural selection um, or evolution by natural selection um actually recognized at the time that altruism was a particularly difficult problem to to explain through his theory because they're it didn't really make sense for organisms within that theory to do things for others that would impact their own reproductive fitness. So, I mean, he said, for instance, uh, about people, he was like, he who was ready to sacrifice his life, uh, as many a savage has been, which is not the most PC thing, but you know, it was quite a while ago, rather than betray his comrades, would often leave no offspring to inherit his noble nature. So, you know, his point was altruistic traits will quickly die out in populations because yeah. it just doesn't help you very much. Um, now, he didn't really come up with a great explanation for this. Uh, his he sort of the closest he got was to say, oh, well, maybe actually altruism sort of operates at the level of groups as well as individuals, and that will kind of do the job. Um, but it was sort of left like that, and it wasn't really a very easy fit. And then um, in the sixties, I think basically a new theory kind of came about that, that sort of blew this out of the water. Um, which was the idea of inclusive fitness, which is also known as kin selection. Mm. Uh, And the idea there is basically the whole problem disappears if you reinterpret seemingly altruistic behavior as uh, actually selfish if you take into account kinship relationships. So the the best known version of this theory is kind of Richard Dawkins' selfish gene idea. So it's like 
actually what's happening when it looks like you're behaving for the good of others is that you are helping your own genes uh, to survive as best as possible. And what that means is that if there are others within your group who share enough of your genes, actually it makes sense to do something to help them survive as well, even if it's not in your own best interest because your genes themselves will will survive. Um, and for a long time, that was kind of uh, seen to be the answer to this problem. And it's obviously made Richard Dawkins a lot of money before he started getting more famous <laughs> as a kind of uh, a militant atheist god beta. Um, but the, the interesting thing is, even more recently, in about 2010, um, there was a paper by the uh, extremely famous Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson with a couple of mathematicians. Um, and he basically went back on his belief that this was the right theory and argued that actually inclusive fitness just totally doesn't work and that actually what we need to do is resurrect Darwin's idea eventually um, of kind of group level selection. And, and this is an argument that's actually raging on in the world of evolutionary biology at the moment. So the question of sort of how you explain altruistic behavior within the framework of evolution, which is, you know, one of our most well-accepted and well-proven theories, actually altruism and by extension philanthropy doesn't really make a lot of sense within that, which seems weird to me. Yeah, and it, and it matters on a number of levels, doesn't it? I, I guess that's a point. I mean, it, obviously it matters for people like us who uh, spend our time <laughs> pontificating yeah, gives, these kind of questions. <laughs> gives, yeah, us gives us reason to gives exist. Stuff to, yeah, it gives us uh, material to fill podcasts with, so that's good, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess as soon as you start thinking about um, the motivation of of donors and the reasons why society may uh, or may not come together to address certain issues, that might suggest different weapons with which to uh, attack those issues, different ways in which you can kind of um, motivate uh, individuals and groups to come together to tackle issues and which, you know, which ways may be more or less successful therein. Um, but I think it also matters in terms of um, answering some of the moral questions about about philanthropy. So I think it sets up uh, a conversation about the uh, the origins of philanthropy quite well because we're starting from, you know, the primordial soup and moving onwards. I think that's absolutely right. And I suppose, like, with a lot of stuff to do with e evolution, um, You've got to be a bit careful about kind of extrapolating uh, directly to kind of uh, to the, the situation of, of human populations, because although we are at base uh, social animals, we're, we're in a lot, lot of ways quite a lot more complicated than ants. I mean, in some ways simpler as well, but, but we have all these sorts of uh, historical uh, precedents and kind of cultural traditions and societal structures put on top of the basic mechanics of, of kind of evolutionary uh theory um and actually you know some of that might conflict with uh with the kind of evolutionary explanation so, so you have to be a bit careful about just taking it at face value but it does tell you something interesting i think yeah i think that raises wider points in any discussion around the evolution of altruism into you know the kind of philanthropy that we see today because society is changed a lot in a very short space of time and that radical change has taken a place in morality too uh so altruism is one side of that but you just need to look at the rest of the social contract that we now have in the world um we've moved from that kind of state of nature where it's 
look after you, you, yourself and yours um, to the exclusion of everything else, even if that means you know kind of murder or, or, or whatever it may be. And we've we've moved past that. Um, now philanthropy may only be the first stage in that in terms of uh, the evolution of al- altruism. So you know what what might we expect further down that road? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I suppose you know it's the ongoing question of how far we actually are from that state of nature, and and sometimes it's easy to assume we're further away from it than we are. <laughs> and then you know you know joking aside, you see situations unfold in certain parts of the world where sometimes it makes you think quite how fragile the all the structures that we put on top of that are, yeah. and how easy it is to slide back to the state of nature. Um, so and, yeah. It and- is- and that actually, philanthropy, when it works well, uh, if if it's prevalent in a nation, um, tends to be quite a good measure of how far we've moved away from that. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, the next section, we're going to look more narrowly at the uh, history of Western philanthropy. Hey, welcome back. So in this section, we're going to start looking at the history of Western philanthropy, more specifically. And that's fairly convenient, given that uh, my colleague, Rodri, uh, has actually written a book about the history of uh, philanthropy in the UK. So, uh, Rod, could you please give us the entire book in about three minutes? <laughs> uh, yeah, OK, I'll do my best, Adam. I'll do the entire history of Western philanthropy in, in three minutes. Uh, the biggest of big history. Okay. <laughs> um, cool. No, I, re- I reckon I can give this a crack. So, I mean, basically... Philanthropy, as we were saying before, and altruistic behavior has been around for a very, very long time. But the kind of the key starting point, I think, and where it gets interesting is the development of what we might think of as something approaching modern philanthropy. And that kind of comes around the end of the, the Tudor period um, in the UK, certainly. Um, so the uh, basically sort of back end of the, the 16th century, well, middle 16th century. So one of the key things there is the... Uh, Henry VIII and his decision to split away from the Catholic Church um, because of his issues around his marriage. And this led to um, the period um, of the Reformation, uh, kind of dissolution of the monasteries and that sort of thing, uh, and the creation of the Protestant religion. Um, and, and whilst, you know, that wasn't designed with the, the purposes of uh, of creating a new form of philanthropy in mind, that is actually one of the effects that it, it had. It's significantly more complicated than that, um, before I get accused of boiling things down too much. But essentially, that was the starting point for the development of a more secular um, form of philanthropy that was kind of founded and based in trying to address social issues of the day, rather than what had been the model up to then, which was a kind of medieval Catholic model of charity based on trying to secure the donor's immortal soul um, in preparation for their passage to heaven, which sort of focused largely on bequests and was very much about kind of uh, what the the donor was trying to achieve. Um, You know, it still took a long time for this stuff to take root, but as as you trace it over time, what you see is that more and more Protestant donors in particular started to focus on issues around them in in the day because they're, you know, it wasn't part of the teachings of their faith. to focus on kind of uh, the immortal soul. Um, And a couple of things happened uh, as a result of that. The more that they focused on that, the more they sort of started to realize the scale of the problems and the fact that they didn't really understand the the underlying causes of them. And this led to a focus, well, on on a number of things. One is on kind of 
research, and this was what led to the development of social research and the use of evidence to try and inform philanthropy. Um, it also led to the um, the creation of the idea of a charitable organization, because particularly as uh, populations mo- became more urban, the, the scale and nature of poverty changed so that basically the problems were too big and too complicated for a traditional model of uh, kind of parish-based person-to-person arms giving to work anymore. And they realized what they needed were some actual experts in the middle who understood what the problems were and could just to say this money. is this is not this is not recent is it we're still talking what are we talking 1800s 1700s yeah so associational philanthropy which is the kind of development of the idea of uh, charitable organizations is yeah kind of saw its real boom in the 18th century basically at the same time as people were starting to do that in the commercial world so develop right the joint stock corporation which was the sort of modern form of business people were doing the same for philanthropy so they developed charitable organizations they realized that they needed to do more research to understand what the actual problems were and they needed to uh, employ kind of more scientific principles and there was the rise of a whole kind of trend of scientific philanthropy which carried with it its own problems um within this broad sort of trend towards you know secularism and kind of focusing on uh, addressing causes and things like that um you had various peaks and troughs so there were periods where there were kind of boom times and you had philanthropic booms that went along with booms in finance there was one in tudor london there was the obvious very known very well known one in victorian uh, britain uh, there was the one in early 20th century us um there's arguably one now in silicon valley in the us mm. um uh, and i suppose the other trend to flag up in this very very quick canter through is that uh as, as philanthropy grew and tried to take on more and more responsibility, particularly, say, in kind of Victorian UK, what that ended up doing was shaping the nature of sort of expectation about what was the role of government and what was the role of private wealth. So the, the Victorian era seems like the time when they basically tried to see whether you could meet the needs of a society through charitable giving. Um, and they had a good bash at it, but it didn't work. Uh, essentially like in a very short short form and that is what laid the the groundwork for the eventual development of the welfare state in the uk um so actually you know we we live in a welfare state in the uk now and we sort of assume that that is how things have always been because it's easy to fall into that trap but actually that is the product of like 300 years of mm. trying to do things through a patchwork of philanthropy and finding that that wasn't really sufficient um well yeah i mean i suppose if i, if I yeah. was to mischaracterize your your work rod i mean it's much easier for me because i didn't write it so it's i can (laughs) i can boil it down into simple answers but but one of the things that that strikes me is um i guess firstly that um exactly the point you're making which is that philanthropy that the relationship between philanthropy and the state is a really interesting one and and in ways can be kind of turned on its head as to what you what you may think particularly what has kind of politi- been around politically uh, in recent years, which is this idea that, well, you know, it may be possible as uh, budgets are pushed harder to move some of the uh, some of the services which are covered by the state in, under, a, under a philanthropic model. But in fact, not only has that been tried before and been found wanting, in fact, philanthropy's job seems to have been very, very different and... Uh, and kind of much more prescient uh, historically in that philanthropy tested the provision of services and and made the case for them uh, and at, one, at the point at which they'd kind of 
successfully made that case in order to take it to scale, the only way to do that was by uh, the state stepping in. So that seems like a really interesting historical learning. But the other thing that really stands out for me from reading your work is just how many of the conversations that we're having today and how many of the trends that we see in the kind of philanthropy market have existed for ages, absolutely ages, whether it's social investment or whether it's the rise of the philanthropy advisor or whether it's questions about uh, you know where the line between politics and philanthropy should end. All of these seem to have already been kind of had, answered, then we forget the answers that we got and come back to the same conversation a generation later. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I mean, it's, it's worth saying that there are kind of limits to the use of historical example. And you've got to be a bit careful because it's quite glib to just sort of throw out a single or a couple of examples from history and say, oh, you know, we've seen all this before. You're not going to sell many books with that issued, Rodri. No, 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 I know. And to be fair, that is something that I now do a lot of. And it's one of my favorite parlor games <laughs> is, is to see to see what historical examples I can come up with of things in philanthropy that have happened uh, before. But, you know, there, there are limits to it because you've got to understand the context of the particular historical time in which it's happening. So, you know, anything to do with talking about the Victorians and their culture of philanthropy is basically pointless unless you understand the, the role of religion in Victorian yeah. England and kind of attitudes to poverty. But putting that aside, it's there's still some pretty interesting stories and examples that you can use to illustrate certain points. And I think, you know, yes, you've got to be careful of using it too much, but equally there's just as much if not more danger of having absolutely no idea of the history of philanthropy and i think the number of people who operate in this world who who don't because it's just not an area of great study and there aren't really that many books on it mm. uh, apart from mine <coughs> um <laughs> just you know it's very readable uh, available from all good bookshops um it's uh you know that's the thing you can learn an enormous amount from it it gives you a lot of context about the fact that what you're doing when you work on philanthropy now exists uh, as part of a kind of long tradition and as a kind of spectrum rather than something that's just come out of nowhere and those those traditions um i mean that's a journey that's that we've gone through in this country and to some extent we kind of we kind of share with other with other countries, particularly you know the U.S. being a strong uh, kind of hegemonic philanthropic culture in the world. You know, has a lot of its roots in uh, European, but particularly in uh, British um, philanthropic history. But there are other traditions of philanthropy that are at different stages in that journey. And in the last section, we're going to talk about those a little bit. Yeah, as Adam said before the break, um, what we're going to do here is follow on from the discussion there about kind of Western uh, philanthropic traditions and uh, look at the, some of the other rich traditions of philanthropy uh, that exist around the world and kind of how they fit in with, uh, you know, the modern world of, of trying to, um, to extend a culture of philanthropy around the globe. So over to you, Adam. Yeah. Now, look, we've, we've purposely sort of teed this up uh, using the word traditional and it, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes when we talk about um, philanthropy in different developing or emerging markets uh, as as traditional, and that sort of sounds like a bit of a either a kind of uh, romanticising of it or a, a, a kind of casting as other or even as as pejorative in terms. But I, th- you know, I think what we're talking about is f- different structural forms of philanthropy um, that 
I think it's worth saying that they're less, perhaps less formal or institutional, but whether that makes them more or less advanced is, you know, it's a, it's a question for, well, I don't know who would be brave enough to answer that, but not me, apparently. Mm. Um, but I, what I would like to do is just look at some of those forms and ask the question of how, how we might think differently about them in order to bring about the kind of best outcome. So uh, luckily for, for us, we, at CAF, we have uh, a, a Global Alliance uh, affiliate office, uh, so a kind of partner organization for CAF uh, that works in South Africa and, and covers Southern Africa. So that's CAF. Southern Africa, um, and so through them we, you know, we have uh, access to um, different philanthropic markets in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and a, a decent amount of intelligence there, uh, including um, some research that we've had commissioned. So, firstly, I thought it'd be interesting to to talk about some of that. Um, so, a couple of years ago in uh, South Africa, we did some research into the market there and it revealed a trend that you see in many sub-Saharan countries which is of widespread generosity throughout society but limited um, limited engagement in and giving to what we might consider sort of formal NGOs that fit a kind of uh, a western model so uh, well in excess of 60% of South Africans give money uh, to charity. But of that, only 16% of those donors give to formal NGOs, which is, you know, a, a low proportion of it. Yeah. But but what they do have there is some just completely different models of organisation that we just perhaps wouldn't even recognise. So they have these things called stockfells, which are they're kind of like mutuals. You kind of... You give money to them uh, and they are charitable, but they exist as a kind of somewhere in between a charity and a a sort of social insurance model uh, and also a kind of saving scheme. So you're able to put your money in there and they can offer some kind of social protection for the community and for you as well. Um, So they're they're quite interesting uh, organisations. Now, half of South Africans... Uh, half of South African adults, anyway, uh, are already members of Stockwells. So straight away, wow. you see this, like, depending on how whether you consider them to be charitable or not, and how far you cast the net, you'll get a completely different picture of, of how developed philanthropy is. But I think one thing that I wanted to uh, to get to is this this increasing thinking of how we can take some of those what we might call traditional forms of, uh, of philanthropy and give them status and bring and kind of help them to come into uh, the the system of formal charity and philanthropy and civil society uh, and help to give them status and make them more powerful without detracting from what makes them uh, trusted locally. Um, so, you know, in one example of this is in uh, the, um, uh, the, Akiba uh, Mashinani Trust, which is a, a Kenyan trust which um, is is formed of the uh, the Kenya Foundation of Slum Dwellers, 700 uh, community savings schemes. So that's, again, it's this kind of a network of community foundations, small organisations that allow local people to save. 
and that's kind of a social protection thing. But by bunching all of those 700 organizations together, you get sort of 300,000 people paying into these local schemes, and it becomes like a giant sort of co-op where some of the extra money and interest can be used to build schools, for example. So it's an example of taking locally trusted forms and creating something that has real clout and legal status and the ability to fund larger schemes. Um, and by doing that, it's possible to kind of get the best out of both worlds. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, I suppose it, it's, it tells you firstly, I suppose, something about how if you want to do philanthropy effectively in a, an international context, you know, it makes sense to go with the grain. And if you just turn up with these preconceptions of what, you know, philanthropy or charitable giving looks like that are based on kind of Western history and ideals and just try and impose those, that's quite possibly not the most, uh, you know, successful way of doing things or most likely to succeed. But it also, it kind of, it's not just in the developing world that, that these sorts of models, which um, don't look like kind of straightforward charitable giving, but clearly have a sort of, charitable purpose of some sort at their heart uh, exist because actually if you look at the the history for instance in the uk of uh, the voluntary sector as a whole yes there's a kind of philanthropic and charitable strand of it but there's also an equally strong mutualism and self-help strand yeah. you know and the, the philanthropy and charitable giving one is a bit more about you know the haves helping the have-nots and the mutualism and self-help one is more gender tends to be more about the poor helping other poor people and it's kind of you know solidarity and working together um and one of the things you know makes me think is actually perhaps this has quite a lot to tell us about what the future might hold because yeah. you know more and more we're starting to see models that blend you know social and commercial purpose or kind of look to do good but using non-traditional charitable models and actually you know there might be other traditions elsewhere in the world that know a hell of a lot more about this kind of thing than and sort of straightforward Western philanthropy, and we could probably learn quite a lot from them. Yeah, absolutely. Look, as philanthropy continues to evolve, it's going to assimilate all of the most advantageous mutations that are occurring in every different culture. Um, and, you know, who knows what they may be? There's nothing to say that the kind of our vision of a, our, our Western vision of philanthropy is going to be anywhere near that final form. Um, and there's clearly a lot to learn from other forms of philanthropy. Okay, well, that's all we have time for uh, this week. So thanks again to all of you for listening. Uh, and thanks again, particularly to to those of you who kind of uh, chimed in with some suggestions for topics we could cover, which we've led to what we've talked about today. And we're hopefully going to do a couple of other episodes based on those suggestions. Uh, if you want to get in touch with any more suggestions or ideas, things we could cover or ways we could make this podcast better, uh, drop us a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. Um, as ever, we'll put some links in the show notes to uh, blogs and publications and things that we've done on the issues that we've been discussing today. And other than that, we'll uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.